0: The following episode originally aired on September 28th, 2023. She's an internal medicine physician who's been called a paragon of modern medical detective storytelling, and now is tackling one of her toughest challenges, caring for long COVID patients.
1: You have to understand that tests are questions. And if you've ever played 20 questions, you know it's possible that your first 20 the answer to your first 20 questions will be no and that's where we are with long COVID. the first 20 questions we ask for many people the answer is no Uh, it's not that but tests are (laughs) there's no
2: there's no test that says wow are you okay (laughs) tests don't work like that Dr. Lisa Sanders is the director of the Yale New Haven Long COVID Multidisciplinary Care Center. It's a new centralized program with a unique approach.
1: Well, I educate the patients who come in and their family members. And, uh, you know, when I speak in public about long COVID, I certainly try to persuade people that it's real. But, you know, not having a blood test or some sort of biomarker doesn't mean the disease doesn't exist there are lots of there are lots of diseases that we diagnose based on clinical symptoms so that's i that's you know that's kind
2: of a bogus claim this is conversations on healthcare
0: well dr sanders welcome to conversations on healthcare
1: thank you so much for having me
0: You know, it takes years to develop effective treatments for complex conditions as we saw with AIDS. Today, almost four years from the start of the COVID pandemic, we know the life-saving aspects of the COVID vaccine and treatment have had a profound impact. But with long COVID, we know that people are struggling with so many symptoms. Is it still an unknown of how many people have been impacted with long COVID and what the long-term effects will be on their lives?
1: Look, we don't even know how many people really got COVID. So how could we possibly know how many people have long COVID? I mean, it's hard to track these. It's hard to track people, especially if they're too sick or not sick enough to seek medical care. So we don't know. I mean, the estimates are that um, about 10%, I think everybody agrees, 10 to 12% of people who get COVID are likely to end up with long COVID. And so that even though we don't really know how many people got COVID, that turns out to be a lot of people.
2: Well, that's really uh, a great point. And I I know the point's often been made often that because we also don't have good data on our marginalized populations and how they fared and what kinds of services and treatment they accessed, even more confusing. But I I know the World uh, Health Organization definition says symptoms must last at least three months uh, after the initial infection to be called long COVID. Uh, That is now generally accepted. And is this length of time a key for you in your evaluation of patients and your treatment planning? Tell us what that length of time seems uh, to the lay person. I think it seems like, well, three months is kind of definitive. How does that play out in what you see in your program?
1: Um, Well, we don't see patients until three months after their infection, because we know that symptoms that occur within that period often are gone by three months. And that just, that seems reasonable. Um, But even for people who have symptoms that last longer than three months, the people that I see, there are some studies that show that the vast majority of these people feel better, I don't say well, but feel better within a year. Um, So I think that the prognosis for this this is pretty good. On the other hand, a year is a really long time to suffer, and there are lots of patients that I see who have been suffering for much longer than that. Most people get better within a year, most, not all.
0: You know, I I wanna pull the thread on your statement that uh, uh, COVID becomes long COVID, maybe in about 10 or 11% of the cases. What are you seeing as commonalities uh, uh, in the patients that you're seeing?
1: Um, let's see. I would say that fatigue is hugely common. Hugely. I mean, almost no one comes to us who doesn't complain of fatigue. Um, and it can be it can be really a debilitating fatigue. Like it's hard to get, you know, uh out of the house, that kind of fatigue. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed, that kind of fatigue. So fatigue is is a, a common problem. Um brain fog or some sort of cognitive change that people notice is also a very common symptom. Um, Most most patients who come with cognitive changes talk about word-finding difficulty and also problems with attention or concentration. It's hard for them to attend the way they used to. And in fact, that probably has a lot to do with the other most common complaint, which is short-term memory problems. Um, if you don't, if you're not attending uh, to the situation, it's very hard to remember. There might also be another component of, of the memory loss, but I think that, or the memory difficulties, but I think that the attention plays an important role. So that's, so fatigue, brain fog, those are probably the two most uh, common problems I see. But then there are a whole bunch of other problems. You know, people feel short of breath. People have chest pain. People get dizzy when they stand up. People talk about tachycardia. So we we try to figure out what to do with each of these problems, try to sort of face them as they are. Because at this point, there is no treatment for long COVID. You know, based on the definition, COVID, you know, the definition of long COVID is you had COVID and then you felt bad. That's a pretty broad definition. Um, And when you see patients with long COVID, they have different manifestations. Like some people are suffering from something that COVID did to them at the time that they had it. You know, people with shortness of breath um, often have some problems, you know, some problems caused by COVID to their lungs. Other people have disorders that are a little bit less easily attributed to instant damage from the COVID itself. Maybe it's their immune system is different or maybe it's an autoimmune disease or maybe it's just uh, uh, some other kind of problem. I mean, so there are like six, six, people say that there are six different kinds of long COVID. And when you have something like that, there's not going to be, I don't think, a single cure
0: let me just follow, f- follow up on that uh, around the sort of interdisciplinary nature of the team that is n- you need to have to address sort of this waterfront of issues that people are facing what's your team look like
1: well we have uh we have three specialists who are who see most of our patients when they first come in um a respiratory therapist sees all the patients who uh, come in with some sort of respiratory or lung problem. Um, they get spirometry. Um, then a social worker sees them because, for two reasons. First, because people often have issues with uh, sort of psych- psychological problems of not being believed and not being supported. Um, which turns out to be very important when you have a, a chronic illness. Um, other times, people aren't able to work. And so they need sort of the more concrete skills of a social worker. So that's been incredibly valuable. Um, and the third person who always sees everybody who comes in is our physical therapist, because one of the most common issues that patients with long COVID have is that they're completely deconditioned. They've been you know laid low by their symptoms and they have not been up and active the way they usually are and so people are are uh, often very deconditioned and we try our physical therapist tries to figure out a good program to get them back up to back up to speed but so those are the people who see them in the office but we also have very close relationships with uh, four other disciplines we have a psychiatrist who sees patients who have uh, anxiety or depression. Sometimes that's a result of being sick, but sometimes it looks as if COVID can actually cause those kinds of problems in some way that we don't really understand. Um, so we have a psychiatrist who sees patients who might need uh, uh, medical therapy for their, for their new psychiatric problems. Um, we also have a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, and a neurologist to see patients who need those subspecialties. Those three specialties carried the burden of long COVID before we started this clinic, so they have a lot of experience with seeing patients who have long COVID.
2: Well, we really appreciate that there is a treatment center for long COVID, and uh, thank you so much for standing that up. I'm I'm curious uh, and very appreciative that you're talking about not just treating the long COVID, but treating the patient's response to long COVID, which is what a lot of the uh, individuals on your team would seem to do. But as we look over the arc and having had the, you know, for better for worse, we've had the uh, frontline seat on the COVID pandemic for these nearly uh, four years. What, what do you see, in terms of trends, uh, people who were uh, more recently infected in the last year and a half compared to the first couple of years of the pandemic, are we, are we seeing differences in severity? How does uh, long COVID today, we've had enough time to say long COVID today versus long COVID lasting from a infection back in the 2020-21 frame. look? How, how is it different or is there any difference?
1: there are differences. I mean, certainly we know for sure that the worse your case of COVID was, the more likely you are to develop long COVID. So the, the first blast of COVID was devastating, devastating, and many people were terribly sick. And so they have a higher rate of developing long COVID. And some of the patients that I see now developed long COVID, you know, right after, you know, in 2020, when they got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, more recent versions have a lower rate of developing long COVID because they're not as sick, and and for some reasons, maybe because they're not as sick, but for some reason, they have a lower likelihood of developing long COVID, and I think that's good news. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, I'm wondering how you answer skeptics who say there's no simple blood test or widely accepted biomarkers to determine whether someone has long COVID. then I wanted to pick up on your statement earlier about the need for a social worker and that so many people are not being believed and there, some might be suggesting they're malingering, uh, but the reality is, is so much different. But first on the biomarkers, uh, uh, the, the challenge for this, and generally the issue around skeptics of uh, how, how you're trying to educate people
1: educate people i you know i uh i don't know about educating people i educate the patients who come in and their family members and uh you know when i speak in public i about long covid i certainly try to persuade people that it's real but you know not having a blood test or some sort of biomarker doesn't mean the disease doesn't exist there are lots of there are lots of diseases that we diagnose based on clinical symptoms so that's i that's you know that's kind of a bogus claim and you have to understand that tests are questions and if you've ever played 20 questions you know it's possible that your first 20 the answer to your first 20 questions will be no and that's where we are with long covid the first 20 questions we ask for many people the answer is no uh it's not that but tests are <laughs> there's no There's no test that says, wow, are you okay? (laughs) Tests don't work like that. Um, So it has to be a very specific question. And we don't even know what the question is for many of these symptoms.
2: I know, uh, Mark, our clinical teams uh, here at the community health center Really, throughout the history of primary care, there have been things that appear on the horizon uh, for which the patients need our support desperately, and we don't always have the answers. I like your analogy to 20 questions; it's more like 100 questions. You still may not, <laughs> still may not get it. Uh, but a uh, lots of people are asking. Though a recent guest of ours was Dr. Uh, Leora Harwitz, who helps lead the National Institute of Health study of long COVID, as I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, called the Recover Project. Wonder if uh, do you uh, know? Uh, what they're hoping to uh, uncover with that project or can you tell us a little bit about it? I think it's one of the largest projects, one of the largest research projects going on uh, in long COVID.
1: I mean, I refer my patients uh, to the people who keep track of that here at Yale, but I'm not I'm not involved directly with that study. Um, There's also another study here that's being done to look at whether Uh, Some of long COVID is caused by residual virus, you know, so uh, there's one uh, project that's looking at seeing whether a a lengthy treatment with Paxlovid has um, any impact on how patients do. So there are lots of studies going on, but we don't really know what the answer is yet.
0: You know, Margaret, I just want to pick up a little on that, whether or not there is enough funding at NIH or CDC uh, to do the work that needs to be done. There was that huge infusion that came uh, when we started off and there was uh, lots of money. Uh, is, it in, is it in the policy makers rear view mirror uh, right now? Uh, and, you know, somebody like yourself who's a lead researcher uh, at, a, at an incredible institution, um, what do you, what's, what's it look like to you in terms of getting the resources that you need?
1: Well, first of all, let me just say I am not a researcher. I'm a clinician. I see patients, I treat patients, I try to get them uh, uh, referred to the right uh, subspecialists or the right people who are the people that can help them. But I'm not a researcher. You know, I hope to be able to understand how long COVID presents in our clinic. Um, We've almost been up for six months. And so at the six month point, I'm going to. Put together a, a database of the patients we've seen so far, but I'm not a researcher, and I've, I, you know, I leave that to the people who 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 know research and understand research. I understand medicine. I understand, you know, I understand treatments and patients, but research is not what, what I will do. You,
0: will you publish on the, your findings there, or what? What's the expectation in terms of taking that important body of knowledge and and sharing it?
1: I don't know that I'll find anything that's worth publishing. There are many, many long COVID clinics out in the world and there've been a lot of studies that look at who uh who what patients with long COVID are like. Um there's not a lot of studies about what actually what kinds of treatments help people with long COVID. Mm-hmm. We're waiting for that. Um and that's one of the things I hope to find out like are any of the treatments that we're prescribing or suggesting or sending people off for are any of them working. And, and well, I look forward to finding out, <laughs> you know, doctors are very poor judges of how successful their treatments are. Um, some of that is because patients are very nice and don't call you up and go, that didn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> but also we're all optimists because you can't be in medicine if you're not an optimist fundamentally, Um, So that's why it takes a study or it takes an assessment to really see how you're doing. And that's the assessment I plan to take at the end of this month.
2: Great. Well, we look forward to that. But also, uh, again, speaking from the perspective of primary care, uh, it is incredibly reassuring to have some place to send patients or some place to consult with when you feel like you just have nothing left to offer in terms of the investigation uh, or the treatment. And I'm I'm curious what you're seeing, and I would imagine it might be analogous in other states. There aren't a lot of long COVID clinics. I'm glad there are are some. Uh, But how are you working with primary care? Do you provide teleconsultation or uh, trainings to primary care providers? And if I could slide one more question into that, when you do look at the patients who are getting referred. Does it look like the populations in our communities? Is it a diverse population? Is it representative of the many communities who are affected? What do you think?
1: Well, first, it is not representative of the communities that um, have been affected. Um, uh, I see see very few of the uh, people who are traditionally underrepresented in medicine. You know, I have, you know, we're just not seeing them, I wish we did. Um, and I'm I'm trying to figure out the best way to reach out to those communities. Um, I haven't gotten there yet. We're still, you know, I mean, we're only six months old, so that might seem like a long time to you, but to me, it seems like yesterday. Um, <laughs> so we're still ramping up. I hope to start educating doctors more. I'm going to uh, Bridgeport to a hospitalist conference to give a talk about long COVID there in October and, you know, I do what I can. I'll probably present some of my patients and findings um, at, at Yale to our faculty there. Um, I write about it occasionally, especially when I make a mistake in my diagnosis column in the New York Times Magazine. So, I, you know, I'm doing what I can to spread the word, um, but I I have more work to do. We have more work to do to reaching out to other communities
0: yeah, and speaking of spreading the word, we hear so from so many, another recent guest of ours leads the Mayo Clinic COVID uh, Activity Rehabilitation Program, and he's Dr. Van, and he told us they're seeing a decrease in long COVID cases and that patients do get better. And I think you've said that over time. Uh, I, I, I sense that does match with your own experience.
1: Absolutely absolutely you know the best thing that could happen to everybody is that we close down because we don't have enough business Uh, i don't see that happening right now but perhaps soon
2: Well, Well,
1: not that soon but (laughs) someday soon
0: yeah though we're seeing this most recent spike uh with a new variant out there um and and that always poses other problems Uh, Margaret, you remember in February of 2020, we had Dr. Fauci on and um, he reminded us that uh, coronavirus mutates (laughs) and uh, that's sort of a given. And uh, I I take it that uh, while we hope there will be a solution here, it doesn't seem like there's a lack of mutations happening uh, globally and this is a global problem. Uh, And so I'm sure we're gonna be in for a long run, but in this most recent mutation, are you tracking at that level as well of uh, um, what variant people have presenting?
1: No, <laughs> we don't. Yeah. You know, we don't because that's that's first of all, people usually don't know what they had. We see them three months later. Um, I suppose we could do a study to look to see. I, I'm not even sure if you can find out which version of the virus they have because. I'm not sure that that kind of technology exists in testing. I mean maybe, maybe you can maybe there's a difference in the antibodies I don't know. Um but it's a good idea. I um now that you've suggested it I'll think about it and ask around about it.
0: One good idea a day and we can go home I think.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, well Dr. Sanders we find ourselves uh on a you know, beautiful day in fall at the advent of flu season, and we were th- we were thinking that there might be a resurgence of COVID this fall. The calendar hasn't turned to fall. The resurgence is already here. We're seeing it. We're not seeing state level data yet in our state anyway. Uh, we'd look to see that very soon, but we can see in people walking in the door, our own staff, colleagues, that COVID is definitely on the rise after a period of being lower. Um, as you uh, look at this fall uh, coming, what's the messaging that your institution is doing around getting the COVID vaccine out there? I know this is not specific to your, your domain of the long COVID clinic, but it is your future patients that we're trying to prevent. Um, what's being done to address uh, outreach, advertising, the underserved populations, and uh, also the cost uh, issues that may go along with it this year? Any comment on that for our listeners?
1: I don't know what I don't know what Yale is doing. I know that certainly we promote vaccines for everybody, especially people who have long COVID. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to somebody with long COVID is that they should get COVID again. I mean, uh, it doesn't necessarily make them worse, but it certainly is not going to make them better. Um, So, uh, you know, a lot of times people are worried because there's all this talk about uh, symptoms after vaccines. I mean, certainly. That can happen, symptoms after vaccines, but you know what? Symptoms after actual COVID are so much more likely, so much worse, or maybe not worse, but such so much more likely. I've seen a, a handful of patients who had, who developed long a, a version of long COVID after they had just the vaccine, but they're just a fraction, a tiny fraction of the people who have long COVID. And many more people got the vaccine than got COVID, so you can tell that it's a it's a pre, it's pretty rare to get any sort of long term reaction after the vaccine. So I encourage everybody to get the vaccine. Certainly, everybody on on my staff, and I, I suspect most people who see patients at Yale will get this new vaccine.
0: Great. Well, that's great. I think that's such an important message, um, and you know. We are, I think we've talked about it before. Uh, it's sort of not in the medical realm about, uh, we are a very divided society uh, on, on this issue. And, uh, you know, we've had uh, a number of people, uh, Dr. Fauci and many others who've been on, who've been attacked for for their positions. And um, I guess, is there a magic answer? You, you've been trying to speak as a physician to people and just, you uh, uh, tell people what you see, uh, but h- how do we bring people together? Uh, you know, medicine had always been a place where a little like foreign policy, we were always d- united on things outside the, the, the country, but it seems on medicine, uh, on this particular issue, uh, the country has been divided. What are your thoughts about how we might find the seam of opportunity so that we can work together, uh, be, we can disagree, but not be disagreeable?
1: Gosh, I don't know. It's not what everybody's mother taught them when they were in kindergarten. Uh you know, I mean, uh it's true that science has been taking it on the chin for the last few years from you know, people who have decided that science is not the way to go. I don't understand that position, but I understand it's out there. Um I have run across very few people who are against vaccines once they have long COVID um so i'm not sure what to do about it i and the number of people who get vaccines goes down and i don't know that that's because people are anti-medicine um i think that people have just feel ready to move on past covid i only wish that covid felt the same way about us
2: right that is a memorable quote. We might have to. We might have to use that. <laughs> Please. You know, we are uh, we are unabashed fans of your column uh, in the New York Times. I will admit, probably like anybody with a clinical background, trying to guess the answer before you uh, reveal it. And uh, there's some pretty challenging cases, all of them, that you talk about. Um, but I wonder um, if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you how you came to this area of being so interested in the mysterious disease that nobody else can figure out the answer to? Uh, what what brought you to this and just a little bit about your your career trajectory?
1: Oh, you know, as soon as I heard about this long COVID clinic that they were starting, they, they were starting it at Yale New Haven Hospital, I was completely interested in it. Because it's, it's a chance to be part of something that's new, to be part of what's the discovery process. You know, I'm not a researcher, but but I am a clinician. And I think that being able to help people at a clinical level is, is so important. Um, and so that appealed to me right away. And, you know, I've always been interested in areas of uncertainty in medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first was in medical school, I came to medical school as a second career. You know, I was in my late 30s. And I didn't, I had covered medicine when I was in my last career, when I was a television producer, but I, I, and I thought I knew medicine, but I didn't understand diagnosis. And when I first saw that diagnosis was not, um, something like the multiplication tables where you just memorize everything. And then, you know, the answer immediately, um, when I saw that there was at times, uh, a need to figure things out. I was very excited about
2: diagnosis, and it's really been a a passion of mine since medical school. Thank you so much for all your years of practice, many more to come, and thank you for joining us. And thanks to our audience. Uh, Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for updates. Uh, You can also share your thoughts and your comments about this program. But we want to thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare and sharing your experience of these past six months in particular, as well as your comments (laughs) on your career. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on healthcare or its affiliated entities.